We're in uh, John 9, and the story of the blind man is 41 verses. That's a little much for my brain, so I'm paraphrasing the Word of God uh, for you this morning until we get to verse 31. Jesus and the disciples one day come upon a man born blind, and the disciples engage in a debate and say to Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or was it the sin of his parents? Jesus says, neither, but so that God will be glorified. And then said, we need to do the work of God and the acts of God while it is still day because it will become night. And then Jesus takes dirt and spits on it, makes mud, puts it on the blind man's eyes and tells him to go wash off in the pool of Siloam. And the man does it. And then he sees, and he goes back to his neighborhood, and they see that he sees, and they argue about, could this really be the man? And he says, I am. And, and, and they're arguing about whether it really is the guy who was born blind. So they ask him, uh, how did this happen? And he says, a man named Jesus uh, spit on uh, dirt, put it on my eyes, sent me to the pool of Siloam, and now I see. The neighbors are still a little questioning because it happened on the Sabbath, so they go get the Pharisees to come and investigate. And the Pharisees ask him how this happened. He, he describes it, and they said, well, what do you think of this man, Jesus? And he said, well, he's a prophet. And then uh, they go and they send for his parents to do some further um, uh, just certification and making sure they know what happened. They say, is this your son? Was he born blind? What happened to him? And they said, he is our son. He was born blind. But as to what happened to him, we're going to let him speak for himself. He's of age. You can ask him. And so the Pharisees begin to quiz him again and debate whether a man of God would really do something like this on uh, the Sabbath. And so finally, in this debate, the, the man says to the Pharisees, you know, this is remarkable that you wouldn't know who this guy is. And then he picks this up in verse 31. For we know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen uh, to those who do God's will. And, uh, and then he'll uh, go on and, uh, and begin to tell him, he said, uh, we haven't heard from the beginning of a man healed who had been born blind. Apart from God, this man could do nothing. Well, the Pharisees are tired of the lecture, and so they reply, You were steeped in sin at birth, and you would lecture us, and they threw him out of the synagogue. Now, when Jesus heard that the man had been thrown out, he found him, and he asked him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man replied, Tell me who he is so that I can believe in him. You have now seen him. In fact, Jesus said, he is speaking to you. And the man replied, Lord, I believed. And he worshipped Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Metaphorically speaking, I'm just wondering if we'd actually be better off blind than seeing when you look at the story, the story is obviously a contrast between a blind man who comes to deep faith in Jesus and Pharisees who can see well enough to read and learn the law, but who miss that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm just wondering if we might be better off blind. Because the blind man experiences Jesus, he's healed by Jesus, and comes to faith. Now, there are several things that interest me about this. The first one is, if you'll note, the blind man doesn't believe in Jesus right away. And so uh, if people tell you that you don't have enough faith to get healed, you can point out to the blind man who didn't have any faith. And in fact, after Jesus healed him, he said, well, this man named Jesus, that's all he thinks of him. 
But then his faith grows as we go throughout the story. Another interesting thing of the story is this guy's blind, so Jesus puts mud packs on his eyes and tells him, go wash off in the pool of Siloam. Well, that's not ten feet away. The guy's got to go on a trip to wash off his eyes so that he could be healed. I wonder if Jesus was trying to teach the blind man and all of us that healing, health, wholeness, sight is always a journey. That it really takes place in stages. And most of the miraculous things that God does in our life don't necessarily happen instantaneously. But they get started in us and they grow over time. And we can watch it grow in this man. If you read the story closely, this is real fascinating how this man uh, changes the way he talks about Jesus. So they asked the blind man who did this and he said, a man called Jesus. Later, the Pharisees are arguing with him. They say, well, who do you think he is? And they said, Jesus is a prophet, the man says. And then after his parents have turned their back on him and the Pharisees are harassing him some more, we get to where the man this, uh, today in this scripture says, apart from God, so now he's from God, this man, this prophet, he could do nothing. And then by the end of the story, he actually worships Jesus and calls him Lord. It teaches me that our faith, our wholeness, our healing is normally a process that will go through many stages. And if that's true, one of the things that we need to know right away is we should be careful about judging ourselves or judging other people when they're at another stage. Jesus, it seems to me, doesn't give up on people at whatever stage they find themselves. He doesn't quit on the man just because the man thinks Jesus is only a man, but he eventually comes back to him and leads the man to a full revelation of who Jesus is. He doesn't even quit on the Pharisees. They argue all the time, but Jesus stays in the argument because I believe that he cares so deeply about the Pharisees. He knows that they're close. They're in the right ballpark. They're just playing the wrong game. And he knows eventually they could come to faith. So he doesn't give up on them. So if our faith is actually a journey, we should be careful about judging ourselves or judging others too harshly for where they are at the current moment. But I also learned from this story is that it's not theological debate and inquiry that generally moves us from one stage to another in faith. That's what the disciples want to do. They want to debate about why is this guy born blind? Did he sin or his parents? And their debate never gets them to a deeper understanding of Jesus, who he is and what he's doing. Sometimes um, debate uh, gets us focused on a question and missing the obvious answer. There was an interesting study. It was done two, days, uh, two decades ago. And it was reflecting on the 1980s. And the church's response uh, when the AIDS crisis sort of came into full bloom in America. And what they noticed is the more liberal mainline denominations' response was to debate other people about whether homosexuality was within or outside of God's will. And they spent great amounts of energy protesting and debating one another. But the study noted something bizarre. The fundamentalist community, who was pretty clear about what they thought and didn't engage in any debate, instead went and started opening up clinics went to the bedsides of people with AIDS, began to hold their hands, to feed them, to raise money for their medications. They didn't spend time in debate. They spent the time in action. Sometimes our debate doesn't lead us closer to God. It actually leads us away from what God intends. 
And in fact, oftentimes when we debate, uh, we look for an answer that we're probably not going to find. And if we found it, we might not like it. One of my favorite stories about the church comes from the third century. And the church, after about 100 years of peace, started going through persecution at the hand of the Romans again. And uh, one of the things is that the churches began to complain and protest to God about this persecution. And they wrote to their bishops and they said, why is God punishing us? Why is God allowing this Romans to do this? You know, tell God, this is not fair, it's not right. The bishops prayed, and we actually have the response that was written uh, almost 1,800 years ago. This is what they said. God is allowing the Romans to persecute us because our rich people are not sharing with the poor. Not exactly the answer these people wanted to hear, but they asked. Oftentimes we ask questions to which there are no answers, or if we got the answer, we might not like it. When we might be better served to just go and do what we what is clear uh, to do to love and to help others, no matter how they got in their situation. But I'm, I notice in this uh, that usually it's not more study. And, you know, I believe in study and I think education is a wonderful thing, but that usually it's not study that fuels our growth from one stage to the other. One of the things that you may have heard about in this church, a number of us are going through a discipleship process called faith walking. And one of their main tenets is information never changes anyone. It is experience that changes them. So you and I can read and study about prayer all day long, but if we never pray, we're never changed. We can debate theologically and look up all the biblical texts on healing. But unless we participate in praying and asking others to pray for us in healing like a friend and her family did, we won't experience what God is doing. It's the experience that changes us, not the information. Well, that raises the question, well, how does God change us through experience? Well, here's the answer I get from the scripture this morning. You might not love it, but I think it's there. The way God changes us and grows us and heals us more than any other way is through obstacles, persecution, and suffering. C.S. Lewis said uh, decades ago that pain was God's megaphone. When we're hurting and struggling, God gets our attention in ways that God can't get it when we're so well off that we can afford to debate each other about those who aren't well off. But when obstacles actually come into our life, God may begin to speak to us In a new way. Look what this man goes through. He faces all these obstacles. First one is Jesus. I mean, Jesus heals him and then ditches him. Jesus is gone. And here's this guy trying to explain to his neighbors, this really is who I am. I really was the guy born blind. And then he runs into the Pharisees. Then his parents basically turn their back on him. Then he runs back into the Pharisees. Finally, they throw him out of church. But with each round of suffering and, and facing an obstacle... The man's realization about Jesus grows. At at first he says nothing, and then they said, well, how did this happen? He says, the man Jesus. Then he goes to the prophet Jesus, to this Jesus must be of God, to finally he calls Jesus Lord. There's something about our struggles that teach us about God in ways that when we are sailing through life, we could never experience God in the same way. There's a clarity that comes to us. In the midst of our pain and in the midst of our difficulties. You've heard the old saying that goes, people don't change so much when they feel, uh, see the light as when they feel the heat. There's something about the difficulties that, that move us closer 
to Jesus and away from reliance on our own self. And so that God can initiate a process of growth in our life, but oftentimes God's going to allow the Holy Spirit to use obstacles for that growth to take place. And the last thing I didn't tell you about this morning is the last few verses, I think is, is perhaps to me the most important point of the story today. The story ends with Jesus telling the blind man about sight and blindness, light and dark. And the Pharisees are overhearing and they said, are you calling us blind? And Jesus said, if you didn't say that you could see, you would not be sinners. But since you claim to have sight and are really blind, you are sinning. And what that teaches me is that oftentimes it's my own sight. It's the things I already know, the things I already believe that keep me from experiencing Jesus. Does that make sense? Sometimes it's my faith that actually presents prevents my faith from growing like the pharisees i have picture that jesus only does a certain way so if your picture is jesus only heals if i believe and believe mightily don't meet the blind man he didn't even have faith or if your picture is if jesus is going to answer this prayer he's going to answer it in a very instant well don't talk to the blind man because he had to go on a long journey to the pool wash off and then put up with a lot of suffering before he got to where jesus wanted him Sometimes the, the very things we bring to a situation, the beliefs, actually keep us from seeing and experiencing what God is doing in that moment. It is my sight that often blinds me to what God is wanting to do. It's the box I put God in that prevents me from seeing the wideness and uh, the larger workings of God. I experienced this in, in a, a significant way for me. A couple of weeks ago, I was flying from Columbia, South Carolina, uh, back here. And uh, when I got on the plane, I looked at my boarding pass, and, and even though I had reserved and asked for the uh, aisle, they'd give me the window. So there's a woman already in the aisle seat that, of course, by rights was mine. And, and, she, and she says, excuse me, it's hard for me to get up. You know, I have some difficulty. That's why they gave me this aisle seat. And so I'm thinking, well, all right, that answers that. So I go and I, I sit by the window thinking, gosh, I hope I can make it without having to get up so, and disturb everyone. So I'm kind of focused somewhere else. And, and then another woman comes and sits between us. And the woman on the aisle who has the mobility issues says to her, as soon as she sits down, she says, I have been praying that God would send the person who needs me the most to sit right next to me. And I'm saying, thank you, Jesus, for that window seat. <laughs> and then she launches in about how God answers her prayers and, and she's uh, getting to do something special she's been waiting a decade to do. And that, and that she was so grateful to God. She said, send me whoever needs me, God. And, and, and so she says to the woman, I know uh, that God has something special for you that I'm going to give you. And she starts lecturing the woman for, well, the whole time we're taxing and, uh, and takeoff. And then finally, the woman in the middle is very gracious about the whole thing, says that the reason she's traveling to San Antonio is because of the death, uh, the sudden death of a loved one the day before. And she's going to inform her children about that death and take them back on the plane with her. And the woman says, oh, it'll be all right. 21 years ago, my husband died, but God has just made it all right. Everything was fine. Honey, you just pray, and, and I'll pray, and it's all going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And I'm sitting there about to crawl. If I can get that window open, I'm out. 
And I'm thinking, I don't think that's how God works here at all. But you see what happened. The woman's sight on the end about who God is and how God works prevented her from really hearing the pain that the woman in the middle was in who had suddenly found out and now was going to have to tell her children that their father was dead. And she missed it. Oh, honey, just pray. And here I am. I'm over there thinking there's another way to do this. But I'm thinking if I say what I think will be most helpful, the woman on the end, there's no way she's going to ever receive that. And she's going to go nuts. And we're going to have a full-fledged theological debate right here in the plane. And I hate those. You want a plane debate, you call Scott Hare. I don't want that. But what I saw is, and, and, and a friend of mine in, in my faith walking group, Jamie Patterson, helped me see that I was projecting onto the woman at the end about what she could and couldn't receive from me, so I never even offered it. You know, likely as not, she might have said, well, you know, I hadn't thought about that. God really could work that way. Or maybe she would have said, no, that's not right. But the person sitting behind us who's probably heard the whole thing would have said, yes, I think that's so. I don't know. Because of what I thought I knew about the woman, I never said a thing. And I thought, well, when we get down to baggage, I'll share with the woman and sitting next to me about how I think God is here and could I pray for her. And, and I know this must be difficult. <laughs> so that was my plan because I knew that would be a good way to do it. And she carried on and I never saw her again. She never went down to baggage. Both of us missed it. The preconceptions that we brought about our faith caused us to miss what God would have us to do. And that woman in her hour, perhaps of deepest need, was really left not touched in a way I believe that God would have her touched. Sometimes it's my sight that really makes me blind. Richard Rohr talks about it this way in a wonderful book called Falling Forward. He talks about the problem they ran into in Japan with returning soldiers from the war who had fought, of course, with such duty um, to their country for a number of years. And when they came back to the village, they didn't know what to do. How do you be a soldier in a village when the war is over? And the village didn't need them to be soldiers. The village needed them to be husbands and fathers and community servants and they needed other things. So finally they came upon this plan. And when a soldier would uh, come home, the village would come out and praise the soldier mightily and thank them. Very effusive praise about their gift to, to country and to the community by serving in the war. But then when that was over, then they would say to the soldier, but we no longer need you to fight. Your community, your country needs you here And they would talk to them about the kind of citizens they needed them to now be in the village. And Rohr says he's learned to to characterize that in his work with men by calling that discharging your loyal soldier. Basically, he said there's a way of living and acting that has got you this far in life, but it probably can't carry you on to the next place in life. What you believe, what you have seen about God has gotten you to where you are in this point, but it may actually blind you. To what God wants to do with you in the future. It could actually be that my sight has made me blind to God. And that the best thing I could do is admit my blindness to God. Open my eyes and see what he wants to show me.